We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we are in week 2 of this series I began last Sunday called Living with Hope. As we go verse by verse through this passage, through this five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, we will see the letter from the missionary Apostle Paul to a church he planted through much affliction and conflict, a church that was started in a pagan, Gentile, corrupt, vile city, a church made up of people from mixed backgrounds, mixed ethnicities, mixed religious experiences, and he's writing to them to encourage them in the midst of crises to live with hope. Live with hope. And this morning, the message I'm preaching is entitled, Gospel Power. Gospel Power. If I were to summarize and present to you a basic thesis or proposition for this message today, it would be this. You can see it on the next slide. The gospel has supernatural power to transform lives, and that transformation power will be evidenced in the lives of the elect. I believe by the time we get to the end of this message, you'll see just what I mean by this proposition. Suffice it to say, the kinds of things we will observe Paul describe as taking place with the Thessalonian Christians, friends, these are the same types of things we ought to see taking place in the lives of Chattanooga Christians. These same characteristic characteristic distinctives of the first century throughout the centuries to the 21st century and beyond ought to be characteristic distinctives of all believers in all places through all time. And let me just say, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I believe with firm conviction that what we see happening in the larger culture around us is the beginning of a purging of Christ's church, the beginning of a purifying of Christ's church, that we are on the verge of this great purifying where many who named Jesus as Savior will no longer name him that anymore. Under much affliction that is to come, they will succumb to the overwhelming pressures on the outside and the ambivalence on the inside. And they will jettison their faith, forsake God's people, and bow down to the false gods personal safety and security. You may ask, well, hold on a second, Pastor. Just last week, you championed the security of the believer, that we are hidden with Christ in God. How can you say there are going to be some who fall away, who jettison the faith? Well, this is a fundamental Bible truth that uh, the most quotable Dr. Adrian Rogers put it like this. He says, a faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. I love alliteration. (laughs) The faith that fizzles before the finish. If someone denies the faith before the end, that faith was flawed from the very beginning. You see, we are not saved by any personal self-determination or self-discipline or tenacity or willpower. And we will not be kept in the faith by any self-discipline, determination, tenacity or willpower 
we are only kept in the faith by Christ alone. He will hold me fast. Why? Because the gospel of Christ has the supernatural power to transform lives. Only the gospel has the power to transition a dead soul from death to life, from darkness to light. The New Testament repeats this principle often. I'll show you a couple of examples, and in the Old Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Bible says this, For the word of the cross, that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. This word of the cross, the gospel, is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Similar thing in Romans chapter 1. You're familiar with this verse. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the euangelion, the good message, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Old Testament has this truth pronounced and predicted as well. The prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 36, the Lord speaking through the prophet says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There is a supernatural, spiritual heart surgery performed not by me, a preacher, performed not on yourself. It's performed by God as the surgeon. And he removes that heart of stone that's impenetrable and he replaces it with this malleable, tender heart of flesh. God does the work. Well, as Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, he reminds them of this gospel power that came to them and that transformed them. And in the process, again, he identifies some characteristic distinctives that he sees and he hears by testimony that are in them. And friends, by extension, they should be seen and by testimony be heard about us. What are these marks that are manifested here that should be manifested in our lives as well. Well, let's pick up our reading in verse 4, and we'll read to the end of chapter 1. Here's what the Bible says. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Friends, these seven verses are chock full of gospel power, and I'm wondering why I only gave myself one week to preach it. (laughs) There are three primary realities I want to point out from this passage 
that I want us to focus on today. These are the three evidential signs of God's grace in a life. Proof, proof of gospel power is, first of all, seen in the fact that we have been chosen by God. Chosen by God. He says that very clearly and succinctly in verse 4. He, God, has chosen you. Paul points to, at the very beginning of this listing of characteristic traits, the fact that the unmerited, undeserved, unilateral choosing of God. This biblical ideal that we're reading about here is known in theology as the doctrine of election. This concept of God's sovereign choosing, friends, it's all through the Scriptures. Old Testament and New Testament alike. But it's no secret that the doctrine of election is a source of great controversy and even confusion. If you've been here at Lookout Valley for any length of time, I don't think it will come as a shock to you that I embrace the biblical description of the doctrine of election. But I say this as a warning to myself and to us all. Listen, the doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped. The doctrine of election is not a banner we wave. Oh, this is my tribe. The doctrine of election is a bastion of security for those who are being kept and gathered up into Christ. It provides a confidence in salvation, knowing this. Listen, my security is not resting on me. My security is resting in Christ. Now, as we consider this Bible truth this morning of the fact that believers Christians have been individually, unilaterally chosen by God. There's a couple of things I want us to point out from the text. First of all, it's this. I want us to consider God's motive in election. What's the motive for God's electing sovereign work? Paul points to it at the very beginning. He says, for we know brothers loved by God. Friends, that's the motive. It's rooted in a heart of God that is a heart of love. God's motive is love. What's interesting is we can find this motive all through the Scripture as well. I'll just point to a couple of examples. In the New Testament, we see that not only these Thessalonian Christians were loved by God, and so God chose them out of his love, but we see the same connection with the Ephesian Christians as well. Notice what Paul said to them in Ephesians 1. He says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did God predestine the Ephesian Christians and the Lookout Valley Christians to adoption as children of God? The motive was love. You see it also in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. God speaking through Moses as the nation was forming right at the first. What did he say to them? In Deuteronomy 7, he says, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. He goes on to say, listen, Israel, there's nothing all that spectacular about you. There is nothing among you that you're the greatest of all the peoples. You're the most popular, the most beautiful. No, the Lord chose you as his people simply because he set his affection on you. He loved you. This is a profound truth. Friends, it doesn't only apply to the believers in the first century in Thessalonica. It applies to us as well. We have been loved by God, and he chose us. And what makes this an indispensable truth is if you let your eyes go down to verse 10. 
Look how this chapter ends. Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. You see, all of us, by nature and by choice, we are sinners who have disobeyed a holy God. And because of our willful disobedience to the commands of God, we are naturally, in our natural state, under God's wrath. That's our condition. Every human is under the wrath of God. What does this mean? We all deserve justifiably the eternal punishment of God. Why eternal? Because God is eternal. Go listen to Brother Joe's message from the last Sunday in in December. Why is hell forever? So it is quite frankly an amazing thing that as a result of his unilateral divine intervention in our lives, he has called us to be a part of the company of Christ. Are you one who can say, I've been loved by God? You see, it's one thing to say, I love God. It's quite another thing to say, I am loved by God. And the tense here indicates that this love of God, brothers, loved of God, is an ongoing, continual, never-ending love. The Apostle John affirms this truth. We sang about it just a moment ago. He loved me first. We only love God because he loved me first. I can't remember the exact lyric of that song, but it's something to the effect of, I would, if he had not loved me first, I would refuse him still. I'd be dead in my trespasses and sins. I would not come to Christ. I would not want Christ. I would not pursue Jesus had he not loved me first. So as confusing and as perplexing to our finite minds with limited understanding is about God's electing love, we must settle our hearts on this truth. He loved us. To reject this truth is to reject another fundamental Bible truth, namely, because of our spiritual deadness, our spiritual blindness, because of the depraved condition of our souls, it is completely impossible for any of us to respond to the gospel apart from an invasion of God. Now, here's the question. These believers in Thessalonica, didn't they have to hear the gospel? Yes. Didn't they have to respond to the gospel? Yes. Didn't they have to believe the gospel? Yes. Didn't they have to repent of their sins towards Christ? Yes. Friends, theirs is the hearing. Theirs is the responding. Theirs is the believing. Theirs is the repenting. In fact, when you consider your own conversion experience, if you're a Christian this morning, maybe you can remember a similar process. I know I can in my life. Friends, there were hundreds of times I heard the gospel. But on that day, I heard it like I'd never heard it before. Oh, I'd given an intellectual assent to the reality and the claims of Christ. I'd even believed that, yes, Jesus intellectually is the Son of God. But I had never believed that way. Says John Wesley recounts in his own personal testimony, a preacher, a pastor, one day he stumbles into a worship service of the Moravians. And there he hears the gospel in a way he had never heard it before. And the way he says it, my heart became strangely warmed. 
Do you remember that? When your heart became strangely warmed to Jesus? This is gospel power. There was never a time in my life when I had that supernatural power in my own heart until that day. It is fully owing to the electing love of God. And what this truth does, listen, it removes any sense of pride. It removes any sense of personal congratulations or attaboy that we can offer ourselves as if somehow we who name the name of Christ are smarter than those pagans. As if somehow we have more insight into those people we decry on our news screens of that are so evil in our world. Friends, you're not any better than they are. It's only because of God's grace. The Anglican New Testament scholar Leon Morris put it this way. He said, left to ourselves, we do not wish to leave our state of untroubled sinfulness. It is only because God first convicts us and enables us that we can make even the motion of wanting to turn from our sins. You see, when we say salvation is all of grace, we mean just that. It's not 75% God's grace and 25% us. It's not even 99.9% God's grace and 0.1% us. It is 100% the grace of God that you're saved today. Salvation that begins with human initiative, friend, will end in human initiative. But salvation that begins in a sovereign love of God in eternity past, love for you before the foundation of the world, it's the same love that will keep you into eternity future. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's the motive. In love, he predestined us. But I also want us to consider, secondly, the mark. The mark. Really, the rest of this chapter highlights the marks of those who are genuinely converted. But verse 5 in particular, I want to point to one mark that we see with absolute clarity. Look again at verse 5. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, people have often objected to this notion of the doctrine of salvation because they, would, they say something to this effect. Well, wouldn't the doctrine of election kind of minimize our zeal for evangelism? If we embrace this doctrine of sovereign election, wouldn't that curb missionary zeal? The exact opposite is true. And we see that in Paul's life. In every one of Paul's letters, he writes regarding God's electing love, but he is the greatest evangelist and greatest missionary of church history. And so he says, listen, I came to you with the gospel. You see, God not only ordains people to salvation, he has ordained the means of salvation. The means of bringing people to salvation. What is that? The proclamation of the gospel. And that proclamation can happen, friend, behind a pulpit or across a lunch table at your work. Paul says, we know that you are the elect because our gospel came to you not only in word. This is the mark. Now, here's a truth we must acknowledge. The gospel came to them not only in words, but the gospel can never come without words. 
Let me say that again for those in the back. (laughs) The gospel came to them and to you not only in words, but the gospel can never come without words. It's been wrongly said by some, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Hogwash. And I know something about washing hogs. You've probably heard well-meaning Christians say things like, I I witness to my neighbor not so much in my words, just the way I live my life. Baloney. (laughs) You can't. Here in, in the church in Thessalonica, we find in Acts 17 the description of how Paul brought the gospel to this pagan city. And I want you to look how this historical record presents it in chapter 17, verse 2 and 3 of Acts. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Three verbs, three action words in this description of Paul's missionary method. He reasoned, he explained, and he proved. Let me ask you something. Can you reason without words? Can you explain something without words? Can you prove who Jesus is without words? No, you can't. When Paul came to them, he came with lots of words. But friends, it wasn't just words. See, we're inundated with words every day. When you watch the news, lots of words. When you listen to your favorite podcast, lots of words. When you read that mystery novel at your bedside table, lots of words. Those can be entertaining words, informing words, even inspirational words. But at the end of the day, they're just words. The gospel ain't just words. This is how the gospel is fundamentally different and diametrically opposite from every other message you will ever hear in this world. It's not just words. It is power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. This is why Paul could say with absolute certainty, we know you are the beloved. We know you are the elect. Why? Because the gospel came to you not with just words. It came with power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. This is the proof of gospel power. They're the chosen of God. But not only are they chosen by God, here's the second thing. Number two, they were changed by God. This word power that Paul uses here and also in 1 Corinthians 1.18 and Romans 1.16, it's the Greek word dunamis. If you've been in church a while, you've heard this before, and some preacher, probably me, has said that's the word from which we get our word dynamite or dynamic, and it is. Paul was completely confident in the effectiveness of the gospel message because of the dynamite, dynamic impact the message had on people's lives. People were radically changed. And here's how this is gospel power. Because this dynamite gospel came into the Thessalonians and exploded their allegiance to the false gods of this world. It blew it up. Look how he puts it in verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Friends, this is an undeniable evidence of the power of the gospel. These Thessalonians lived in the middle of a pagan, polytheistic, idolatrous culture. Their social lives, their family lives, even their vocational lives 
were intertwined and tied to the pantheon of gods that were worshipped in Roman culture. It was perfectly acceptable to come along with some new god and put this new god within the pantheon of Roman gods. Here's what was not tolerated. To say all the pantheon of gods in Roman culture were completely illegitimate and there is only one true God. Yet this is exactly what happens with the Thessalonians. They had forsaken the common mindset of the day. They had rejected the prevailing worldview of their times. And as Paul says it, they had given their lives now to serve the living and true God as opposed to the false and dead gods. And listen, it is precisely because the gospel alone has the power to bring about radical and total transformation in a, in a person that, friends, it's ridiculous to me to see churches, parachurch organizations, and ministries and outreach events that rest conversion on entertainment techniques, that rest conversion on the souls of men on some type of pragmatism well if we just have this marketing strategy if we just have this fun event maybe people will come to christ those are impotent of power it is only the gospel that is spiritual dynamite to explode idols and to dynamically raise someone from death to life and fundamentally here's why the gospel has dynamic power because all three persons of the trinity all three persons of the godhead are involved in this proclamation and transformation that comes with the good news of christ this isn't on your outline but you might want to jot these down on the back if you want to let me show you briefly where the god has involved in your salvation number one god the father administers salvation By that I mean he planned it, he ordained it, he supervises his will for our redemption. Again, back to Ephesians 1, the Bible says this truth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God the Father, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God's plan. He's the one who planned it, he's the one who willed it, he's the one who administers it. The Father administers our salvation. Secondly, the Son accomplishes our salvation. God, the Son, has accomplished the necessary work for us to be saved. Back to Ephesians 1, in Him, we have redemption through what? His blood, His death, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The saving accomplishment of the Son is seen in this. Listen, His perfect life. Tempted in every way as you're tempted, yet he never once failed, never had a flaw. In his vicarious death, dying in your place, taking your punishment in your stead, through his work of accomplishing our salvation, through his resurrection from the dead, ascension on high, and friend, he's going to fully and completely accomplish your salvation when he comes again from on high to raise you up from the physical death to reign with him forever and always. God the Father administers our salvation. God the Son accomplishes our salvation. But don't miss this. God the Spirit applies salvation. How can I be included in God's salvation? How can I know that these things we talk about are not just 
merely true in the abstract, but true personally for me. It's only through the work of power by the Holy Spirit who gives us faith and unites us to God in Christ. He powerfully and supernaturally applies the work of God, the Son, and the will of God, the Father, to us and to these Thessalonian believers 2,000 years ago. This is the fundamental change that is seen in them. In fact, I want us to consider them in four ways. Back to the other side of your outline real quickly. First of all, we see the fundamental change in them, and number one, they had a new foundation. The change in them was obvious. These believers' foundation for their lives was no longer in the things that they had before. Their foundation was now in Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. They had a new family. They had a new family. For we know, he says, brothers. It could have just as well been translated brothers and sisters. They have a new family of relationship, of encouragement, of care, of exhortation. You see, for many, if not most of them, their allegiance to Christ had not only severely strained their human family relationships, but in a lot of cases had severed those relationships. And they had a new family. They had new relationships. We are family. I got all my sisters and brothers with me, right? (laughs) That's why we say every Sunday, welcome home. This is your forever family. They had a new foundation. They had a new family. They had a new focus. They had a new focus. Again, he says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. No longer is their focus on the accomplishments of life. No longer is their focus on the applause of men. No longer is their focus on procuring for themselves all the possessions of the world that the world says you just must have. Friend, you may have wandered in this morning or you may have stumbled across our live stream today. And perhaps even today, the message of the gospel is being personally applied to you by the Holy Spirit. There's a conviction of your own sin you didn't know before. Where does that conviction come from? The application of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in your own mind that even now there is convincing proof of the claims of the Bible, that the Bible is true. Jesus is who he said he was. As such, because of his sinless perfection, he never deserved your wages of death, but he took them in your place. Perhaps today, for the first time, there is a deep sense of trust and even a willingness to abandon the rule of your own life and surrender to Christ. If that's you today, if you find your heart today, maybe for the first time, strangely warmed, I would commend to you the warning from Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You may have heard the claims of the gospel many times before, but today you hear his voice. It's clear. It's unmistakable. It's saying, repent and believe the gospel for your salvation. Do not harden your heart. You see, we know these Thessalonians had really been changed. They had a new foundation. 
They had a new family. They had a brand new focus. And finally, they had a new future. (laughs) This is the promise for all who are in Christ. Look at how verse 10 describes their current state of mind. They're thinking about the future and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us here in the future from the wrath to come. There is wrath coming for all the abortionists, for all the racists, for all the sinners just like me. Wrath is coming. It is being filled up in the buckets of God to be poured out on the lost. For them, this is a complete and total reorientation about the future. And we will return in this letter of 1 Thessalonians again and again to the blessed hope, the return of Jesus, the coming of his son from on high. You see, if we just, if we just look at the here and now, if we just look at the current catastrophes and crises that dominate our world, we will end up discouraged, depressed, and in despair. But even here in this first chapter, Paul is reminding them of hope. We wait for his son. We look forward to co- with confidence to his appearing. And Paul knew that the gospel had come to them legitimately, authentically. Why? Because they'd been chosen by God They'd been changed by God, but finally, they were now channels for God. They had become channels through whom God was working powerfully. Let's see what it means to be a channel. Uh, Look at verse 6 again. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They came to faith in Christ. They believed the claims of the gospel. And they said, well, we're Christians now. Who are we to imitate? Who are we to copy? Who are we to pattern our lives after? Who's the model we should follow? Well, Paul and Silas are the ones who brought us this message. Maybe we should follow their example. Maybe we should imitate them as they imitate Christ. And so they hear the testimony of Paul and Silas how the city they were in just before was the city of Philippi, how a massive riot was there in Philippi, how these men were brought before the authorities of the city. They were stripped of their clothes. They were beaten with rods, and they were thrown into the inner prison and their feet locked in the stocks. How did Paul and Silas respond to the affliction? They sang hymns of joy in the night. And so these Thessalonian Christians, having no other people to imitate said, well, I guess this is how you respond to affliction. When you get affliction, you're joyful. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what they did. I wonder, Christian, believer in Jesus, especially I'm speaking to the ones who have been Christians for decades. Is that how people would describe your life? In great affliction, Boy, they express incomprehensible joy. Or are you one to know, known to be a griper, a complainer when things don't quite go your way? They imitated them as they were imitating the Lord. See, the Lord, though he was chastised, did not open his mouth. 
And then you go into verse 7, and you'll see exactly what I mean by the fact that they became channels. Verse 7 says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Greek word, therefore, example is the Greek word tupos. I'll explain that in just a moment. See, here's what happens. As you first come to faith in Jesus, you look around you. Who, who are the people that I can model my Christian life after? I remember for me, it was my pastor and my brother, Tony. As I saw my brother, Tony, that I shared a bedroom with for 13 years, go from being a profane drug user to I had to be careful when I opened our bedroom door because he'd be flat on his face crying out to the Lord. I said, that's who I want to imitate. When I saw my pastor under whom I was born again have a passionate proclamation of the gospel, I said, that's who I want to imitate. That's who I want to copy. But here's what happens. After you're a Christian for a little while, you look over your shoulder, there's some people copying you. There's some people who say, well, you've been a Christian for a while. Maybe this is how I should walk. This word, example, tupas, in the Greek it referred to making an impression. We get our English word type from that. Tupas, type, typewriter. I learned to type on a typewriter. I've got a picture of an old typewriter. Some of y'all can remember this. Really strengthened my hands using one of these things. If you remember how a typewriter worked, every key on the keyboard of the typewriter was connected to a corresponding arm or hammer, as they're called. And on the end of that hammer, you'll see a, a, an image or the impression of a letter. And here's how a typewriter worked. That when you pushed a key, the corresponding hammer would then smack against an ink-soaked ribbon and would leave an impression on the paper. That's type. It's literally what it means. An impression, an imprint. Paul says of these Thessalonian Christians in Macedonia, the northern Greece, in Achaia, southern Greece, and in fact, all the churches, you guys are leaving your impression. You're making a tremendous tupas example impact with the gospel. These are the evidences of gospel power in a life. I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon once told of an experience of the Welsh evangelist Roland Hill. On one occasion, the evangelist was walking a city street and he came across a man who recognized him and said, Mr. Hill, I am one of your converts. Now, this man was, as Spurgeon described it, not quite drunk, but almost so. The evangelist quickly responded, you say rightly you are one of my converts, for if you were one of God's converts, you would not be in this state. Spurgeon went on to say in that sermon, our converts are worth nothing. If they are converted by man, they can be unconverted by man. If some charm or power of one preacher can bring them to Christ, some charm or power of another preacher can take them from Christ. 
True conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit and of the Holy Spirit alone. Friends, this is how the gospel came to the Thessalonians. Again, look at verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Two questions as we close. Number one, is this how the gospel came to you? And number two, is this how the gospel is going out from us? That leads to my last thought. Authentic conversion is always accompanied by observable change.